0: So several years ago, Sherry and I decided that we were going to surprise the girls on Christmas morning. Uh, We decided that we weren't going to do gifts. Talk about a surprise. Um, But we did have a plan. Um, It just didn't involve us offering them traditional presents like we had previous years. See, we have this family value in our house. We always say that we value experiences over things. And so we thought, well, let's give them an experience this year instead of just more stuff to put in their closets or to, to clutter their bedroom floors. So on Christmas morning, we always have this tradition every single year. The the girls sort of wake up. We usually wake them up at some time in the morning, and they're sort of sleepy, and they come out, and we get the stockings, and they begin to unpack their stockings sort of while they're waking up. They're in their pajamas, and we're kind of beginning our day this way. And then after the stockings, we'll eat breakfast, and then after breakfast, then we'll go into the real present opening. So this particular day, when the girls came out and they got their stockings, we had loaded them with all sorts of, like, just nonsensical travel oddities, you know, little baby soaps and luggage tags and blow up inflatable airplane pillows and all these different things. And the girls, they're so tired. They're not even realizing they're just sort of looking at this stuff and it's not registering that they're all connected. In fact, they're faking to actually like the stuff and we're loving it. Like this moment is so great. And so they empty all of their stockings with all this travel stuff around them. They're not putting the dots together, and then we bring out a final gift. It was a a little box, and we said, this is for all three of you, and you guys can open it together. And so there they sat, now waking up a little bit more, and they pulled the ribbon off, and when they opened the box, inside of it was a snow globe. And inside of the snow globe, they kind of looked at it for a second, they were puzzled, but inside the snow globe, there was New York City. And finally, one of the girls was awake enough to put things together, and they said, and I don't remember who it was, but she said, are we going to New York? And so Sherry and I couldn't help, we just smiled and uh, they knew exactly what we had done in that moment. And then one of the other girls said, well, when are we leaving? And that was the best part. We said, in about seven or eight hours. So you need to go to your room right now and start packing, this is Christmas, this is it. I have to say that that surprise and shocking them in that way was one of the best Christmases that we've ever had. I love that whole aspect of surprising people around Christmas. And it's interesting because when I think about our Christmas traditions, they always include some element of surprise. And there's a reason for that. The Christmas story is literally loaded with surprises and these shocking twists, Uh, At the heart of the Christmas story, there is this element of surprise, things that we didn't expect to see, surprises that have a lasting impact on who we are, surprises that, that impact what we believe, surprises that influence the way that we think about who God is and who we are in relationship with God. And so this Christmas Eve, I want to take a moment and talk about three distinct surprises that we see presented to us in the story of Jesus coming to earth. Um, the, The first surprise is this, and it's sort of obvious. The first surprise is that God comes to us in the first place. Um, When John the Apostle was writing his biography of Jesus, he began in a way that was completely unique from all of the other gospel writers. His stands out, and I want to read it to you because this is where he begins his story of Jesus' life. John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John begins his story of Jesus in a very different place than the other biographers. He, they begin with the story of a baby being born, but John begins in this cosmic realm. In fact, there's this rich concept that's embedded in what he's saying here. There's a sort of deep philosophical meaning. He chooses a vocabulary word very carefully, and he starts by saying, in the beginning was the word. Now, in the Greek language, the word for word is the Greek word logos, And the moment that John said Logos, the moment his audience heard this, they were hooked. He had their attention. Because the ancient Hebrews, for example, who would have been one of the groups hearing this, they spent a lot of time talking about this idea of the word or the Logos. Um, From a Jewish point of view, the Logos would have been understood like the divine wisdom of God. They would have called it literally the word of God, or they would have referred to the Torah, frequently thinking of the Torah as the Logos of God. It was the word that brought life into being. For them, God's word ordered all that is, all that was around them. That's one group. Now, the other group that would have been hearing this would have been the Greeks. And John dove headfirst into deep philosophical waters with the Greeks when he used this word. Um, The Greek philosophers also used logos to describe the spoken word, but they also used it to describe the unspoken word, to describe the words that are still in our mind, the logos that we would call reason. So the Greeks, whether it was Plato or Heraclitus or, or others, they would use this word to describe this sort of rational principle That governs the universe. So so John starts his biography and starts with this phrase in the beginning was the Logos, and he's connecting with his audience and he's connecting all of the dots. The Logos is who holds all things together. The Logos is why our DNA stays intact and doesn't dissolve. The Logos explains the seemingly unexplainable things that we observe in our universe. The Logos is why you're alive and conscious and and on a planet that's spinning and moving through space at thousands of miles an hour. The Logos is behind all of this. So, So the folks that would have been reading this for the first time, when they were hearing this, when they were seeing this, odds are, they would have just nodded their head in agreement. They would have said, yeah, you're right. In the beginning was this thing called the Logos. But they never would have seen what was coming next. A few sentences later, he gives them this massive surprise. He keeps talking about the word, but then he adds something in verse 14. And I want you to hear what he says. He says, And the word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, this sounds spectacular, but again, the words he chooses to use present this radical and unexpected concept to us. First, um, he says that the word becomes flesh. So this divine force, this divine reason, this divine entity that people were acknowledging was out there, that they're agreeing that he's behind all of these things, he's saying, no, no, this Logos that was out there has become flesh, has dwelt among us. That in itself is remarkable. But then he goes even further. Um, for you to really understand how surprising this is, how even controversial this is, you have to know this. There are two common words in the Greek language to describe this physical thing that we have one word for in our culture called the body. Um the, the word soma is, is a common word. It's sort of a beautiful word to describe the body. It's a clean word. It's a nice word. The word soma is, is the word that the apostle Paul uses when he talks about the church being the body of Christ, the soma of Christ. But here's what's interesting. When John talks about the logos of the universe becoming flesh, he uses a different word. He uses the Greek word sarx. The Greek word sarx, is loaded. Sarks in this culture is a crude term. It's it's a crass way of referring to the body. It's earthy, it's gritty. Sarks is a little bit shady. It's sort of describing the brokenness. In fact, oftentimes when the biblical writers are talking about the broken flesh of humanity, they use the word sarks. And what John is saying is that the logos of the universe, the divine wisdom, the word, became gritty, became a part of the grime became human, so why did he choose sarks instead of soma? Why would the word become or embody or take on sarks well he 's making a point to us he 's making a point that this God is comfortable with the messiness, this God is comfortable with the sarks the word becomes sarks god is is okay entering into the realm of the awkward and the gritty god will enter into the realm of the brokenness of life he will he'll touch the scars and feel the pain god is in the realm of working among dysfunctional families and messed up lives He's not just up there. He's not just out there removed in some sort of place where we don't understand who he is. God moves toward us. He moves with us. He gets in the mess in the middle of this. Logos becomes Sarks and made his dwelling among us. That's a very specific idea that's that's being presented here. This is a word... um, when he says that God made his dwelling among us, he's saying that God tented among us. God set up his tent among us. In other words, God set up camp with us. God made his dwelling among the people. This idea that God is out there, this idea that God is distant, that God doesn't want to have anything to do with, with the fleshly realities that we deal with has never been a part of the biblical narrative. That's actually our invention. Our invention. We're the ones who have drawn that conclusion. God dwelling among his people is what he's been trying to show them all the way. This has always been the way that it is. God moves towards the fleshly, messy, awkward moments of humanity. And at some point... We have to stop and capture the beauty of this moment that in Bethlehem, a baby is born, a child comes to us, but this child represents God moving towards us no matter where we are. That is the biggest surprise that we see in all of this. God coming to us. But it's not just that; it's also the manner in which he comes to us. You know, the gods of the past, um, the gods throughout history, they would announce themselves. You know, when you read the literature, they would announce themselves when they arrived. It was lightning and thunder. It was storms and earthquakes and fires. Um, the gods of the past, they they thundered their way into the moment. They came through the front door. They beat on the door. They rang the doorbell. They made an, a, a proclamation that they were present. That they, they honked their horn in the driveway as they pulled up to the house. That's how the gods of the past, entered into the scene. To to most people living in the first century, and and, and maybe even a bunch of people living today, God was demanding and attention-hungry and angry. And if not angry, if if maybe you say, well, I don't think he's angry, at least we say he's distant, distant from us and maybe a little bit disappointed. But not this God. This God is different. I want you to hear how this God enters the scene. Think about this as his statement of entrance. In Luke chapter two, verse one, Luke writes his biography of Jesus and says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. clearly is about an entirely different kind of God. This God does not thunder onto the scene. This God sneaks in through the back door. This God shows up as a baby in a manger. This God comes quietly in the bosom of this scared teenage girl. This is a story about a completely different kind of divine. This God doesn't come crushing everyone in his path. This God comes quietly and humbly in a manger. See, there's a surprise at the heart of this Christmas story. God sets out to save the world, and he doesn't do it like we would do it. We'd have press releases, we'd have armies, we'd have all sorts of billboards and and all sorts of campaign slogans. We would have a lot of noise with whatever we were doing, but this God does it quietly. In the dark of night, that's when Christmas arrives. In the valley of shadows, if you will. There's no place in the inn. So where does he stay? He stays in a, in a shed, a sort of lean-to on the side of somebody's house. He's born in, in, into shameful circumstances. A couple recently married, but they're, but they're covered with this controversial pregnancy that's hanging over their story. They're not wealthy or powerful. In fact, they're probably quite the opposite of those things. You can just feel God. When you read the story and you think about it, you can feel God bending into the weakness as we read it. He becomes the lowly. This one thing, the fact that he came in infancy, unable to speak, is one of the most mind-blowing concepts to me. Here is a God who can only cry to communicate. He's dependent on his earthly mother for sustenance. He takes on our frailty. He takes on our flesh. He comes on that night into this mess of humanity. He doesn't rescue us from above. He doesn't come in and just pluck us out, reaching down to lift us up. He sneaks in and gets in the trenches alongside of us and then he fights his way out along with us. This, I believe, is why this story moves us so much because this story tells the story of a God who is unlike any other God, a God who enters in with us and knows what it's like to be where we are. See, the the real Christmas starts in the darkest of places. And, And the only conclusion we're left to draw with all of this is that this is a God who loves us. See, modern educated people like you and I, we can feel alienated from God at times. We may wonder like, where is God? What are you up to? But when you see this story, when you pull back the veneer and you look past the paper and the ribbon, you see a God who is near to us. And when you really begin to see the story that's being told, when you really start to understand this, you realize he's right here with us. In fact, the the greatest surprise, I think, in all of this may not be the fact that he arrived or the manner in which he arrived, but maybe the greatest surprise is the reality that this God who entered space and time then still does today. See, this was never intended to be just some sort of nostalgic story that we pause to remember once a year. Like, we look back fondly at this thing. Like, that was nice when God did that thing. No, this is a story that God tells to show us who he has been and who he will always be. This is a story that continues In fact, let me go back to John's biography of Jesus again. When John was introducing Jesus, he referred to him in a new way that I think speaks to our present reality and the fact that God is still coming to us. In verse 1, again, of John John chapter 1, verse 9, he says this. He says, "'The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him.'" He came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. The light entering into the darkness. And that light still shines. That light continues to illuminate the darkest of places. You know, Jesus never intended for us to leave him in the manger. (laughs) That is not where the story was ever intended to stop. He is not the perpetual infant son of God. That's how the story began, but that is not how the story ended. He tore the night apart. He ripped the skies in half. He broke through the darkness. He turns the universe upside down because light has come in to the darkness of night. In fact, there's this one name that he's been given that when fully understood will liberate your ideas of Jesus stuck in some sort of manger and it will place you place him right alongside of you tonight wherever you're watching this you will realize that Jesus joins you wherever you are. Uh, In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, there was a predictive scripture, a prophetic scripture, that described this moment in Bethlehem. In fact, it's the same passage that Matthew quotes when he tells the birth story of Jesus. Listen to this in verse 23 of Matthew 1. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. He's Emmanuel. God with with us. There's something about that name that I think most people today miss. It's in the present tense. God is with us. It's not past tense. It's not God was with us in this moment. It's God is with us because this is not a God who simply did something back then. This is a God who is with us today and present. He still comes to us. He continues to join us. The light of the world in the darkest of nights. He comes humbly. He comes quietly. And he can illuminate the darkest of places, the darkest of nights, the darkest of moments because he is the light of the world. He will give us the ability to walk in the dark. This light has dawned and is dawning. That's what John says. The light is dawning. The sun is coming up. It's a new day because of Jesus. The light of God has entered the darkness. Now, this leads us to a tradition that we have. Uh, Every year, we close our time together at Christmas Eve by lighting a candle in the dark here's what's really interesting about this. Um, The lighting of a candle is actually one of the most ancient forms of prayer. Throughout the centuries, Christians have struck a match and lit a candle to give a physical representation of a spiritual desire. It's like when they light that candle, there's a prayer and they're saying, Jesus, there's this dark moment here. Would you come again into this dark moment and illuminate it with the light of your life? Um, so, So this tradition of lighting a candle is symbolic of the light of the world coming to us. It illuminates the dark. He illuminates our life. He is the light of the world. So right now we're gonna do this together and hopefully you've had a chance to grab a candle around your house or maybe one off the fireplace right now, but we're gonna, we're gonna light a candle together and I'm gonna light one and I'm gonna pray as I light this that Jesus would enter the darkness and together we're gonna join and we're gonna sing Silent Night. Um, so if you're watching from home or wherever you may be, I invite you to join us in this moment and would you sing with us as we enter into this prayer and this candle lighting together. Let's sing.